This is Jeff Nyquist and the JRRNyquist.com podcast for a Tuesday, December 2nd, 2008. And with me again is uh, my Africa correspondent and friend in South Africa, Jan Lemprecht. Hi, Jan. How are you doing? Hi there, Jeff. It's nice to be on your show again and to be chatting to you. Yes. Um, <laughs> we were we were going to talk about uh, the growing terrorist threat. It's uh, with this uh, attack in India. It's become uh, headline news again about the horrible atrocities committed by these people. And I, I happen to have got my hot little hand. Bill Gertz's new book. Bill Bill Gertz is, of course, the uh, uh, the Washington Times correspondent for the Pentagon and Intelligence News, and he's produced a number of books. And what he does is he has sources in the government that reveal how the government actually works. And uh, yeah. the subtitle of his book is "How Unelected Bureaucrats, Liberal Democrats, and Big Government Republicans Are Undermining America's Security and Leading Us to War." It's kind of scary. Leading you to war. Yeah, because they're making us weak and uh, okay. opening us up to attack by those who want to get at us. And that's how wars are encouraged. And when he writes, he has a, a part in the introduction called Blame America First. And I just want to quote this to you. In order to accomplish the work of government, cadres of professional people are needed. The problem in the U.S. government is that misguided bureaucrats have come to dominate the entire system. Instead of following the policies and programs espoused by the elected president and vice president and their approximately 3,000 political appointee representatives, bureaucrats hold these elected and appointed officials in contempt. The bureaucrats believe they are the ones who should direct government and often take steps contrary to U.S. national interests. These are the gray men and women who toil in obscurity but who mainly oppose conservatives, from Ronald Reagan to George W. Bush, and seek to quietly thwart their policies. They are the keepers of rice bowls, protecting their bureaucratic areas in mindless turf wars. Their modus operandi is to oppose all moves to action. But most of all, they are frightened and vehemently oppose going on the offensive. The main reason bureaucrats have accrued so much power is that they are civil servants who can't be fired, unless arrested and jailed for major crimes. Their uppermost ranks can make upwards of 170000 per year, plus annual all-but-guaranteed bonuses of 15000 to 20000 The top ranks become senior executive service or senior intelligence service officials. They fear action because it entails producing tangible and measurable results that could expose their failings and shortcomings. They fear risk, for risk can cause them trouble. They especially fear criticism, since criticism will force them to be held accountable for their work. And most important... Bureaucrats are resistant to change. Quote, that's not how we do things, unquote, is the bureaucrats' frequent rejoinder to those directing their activities. It's very interesting. Bill Gertz, the failure factory about how the U.S. government works. And I might add my own experience is that, you know, in order to get these government jobs, especially in the management, you have to have uh, university Education and most universities in the United States uh, teach some form of a neo-Marxism as part of their, especially in their graduate programs. And so these people go with these politically corrected opinions, oftentimes very far to the left, into government service, whether it's the Pentagon, the CIA, it doesn't matter. There's no right-wing element in the bureaucracy to keep them out. They have become the staff, the permanent staff of the U.S. government. And if you elect a conservative, 
uh, he's going to turn red in the face because they're not going to do what he wants. They're going to undermine him at every step of the way. That's what's happened in Iraq. It's what's happening in Afghanistan. And it's going to be interesting to see what Barack Obama confronts as he, uh, if he's a very, he seems an intelligent and pragmatic individual, if he doesn't do what they want, they'll undermine him as well. Jeff, you know, I've, I mentioned something like this just, just by observing your country from afar. Uh, for quite some time, I've been saying to people, um, I used the term middle management. And I was, sa- I wrote on my website on African crisis and I would say to people that I'm convinced that America is actually run by middle management. Mm. And, um, it really amounts to the same thing because when I think, when I look at the way your country behaves, you know, because many people say there's no difference between the Republicans and the Democrats, it's, it started striking me that the issue might not be so much that that the Republicans and Democrats are both secretly bought and owned by, by, by certain persons. It could also simply be the fact that the people on the inside are also consultants and advisors and so forth. So I actually wrote a piece where I'm, where I said that I imagine that when a, when an American president gets elected, and I was kind of cynical as well, because I said that, um, I'm sure that you don't need to be able to do more than um, answer a multiple-choice question in order to become the President of the United States. Because at the end of the day, I'm sure that the President has all these advisors and people giving him presentations and so forth, and they say to him, well, you have a choice between option A, option B, you know, choose one of them. But the guys who are giving him the data, they obviously have... Lots of sources of data, and they have academics perhaps among them, and I'm sure that they can out-argue and convince an American president that he's wrong. Well, they don't even do that. What bureaucrats do in this country, we've had this problem a long time, and they call it the permanent government. We have our elected government and then the permanent government, and the permanent government are the people that uh, are career bureaucrats, just as Bill Gertz uh, pointed out. And these people, by using different rules and procedures, bureaucratic rules and procedures, they can block the president. They can whip out this old thick book of government rules and regulations and say, oh, the president wants us to do that. Oh, there's a little regulation right here. I just found it. It, 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 We haven't used it, but it's been there for 30 years, and that'll make it. If we follow that, we can't do what the president's asking. And then when the president finds asks, well, why isn't this being done? Well, they can't do it. They have certain rules they're not allowed to, if he finds out so at all. Lo- yeah, they, they, block, okay. they block his way. Also in Iraq, for example, uh, this book, uh, try to remember the book. It was... Um, Oh, Timmerman. Uh, Timmerman wrote a book about the Iraq War, which was quite a, a bit of dynamite. And an example from that book is, you know how they didn't find any weapons of mass destruction? Or well, so the, people the, say. The bureaucracy, <laughs> well, of course they did. They actually found evidence of, yes. of chemical and uh, weapons production. And, and, of course, the nuclear program, everybody knows Saddam Hussein had a nuclear weapons program. Well, yes, how come they absolutely. couldn't find it? Well, in fact, the military knew it was buried under the Euphrates River. We knew this from from defectors, um, and uh, they knew they had to, there was a huge hump of the of the bunker where it was uh, 
where you could see part of it next to the river. But they had trouble finding the opening. And nobody in the Pentagon bureaucracy or the State Department was interested in finding the opening. In fact, to tunnel in through the concrete and steel and whatever and, and to find it without finding an opening would cost lots of heavy equipment. All the bureaucracy did was make sure that, that there was no heavy equipment for tunneling into there so no one could say they had found his nuclear weapons uh, bunkers underground. And it's just outside of Baghdad, or all practically in the city limits, if I remember the book correctly. This is just one example. The, the bureaucracy, and then they'd ask a general, why don't you want to get down there? He says, it's not my problem. You know, he's coping with his own problems. He doesn't want to use his valuable resources to do something that's not part of his mission. So the, the way it all works, and of course in intelligence with the CIA, as Timberman's book points out, the CIA went out of its way to embarrass President Bush. Because the CIA were the ones that told them that WMDs in Iraq was a slam dunk. And when it yes. turned out that Saddam had moved the weapons of mass destruction to Syria, and the CIA wasn't keen enough to learn that, they were dubious about saying whether he'd moved them to Syria or not, uh, they wouldn't come out and say it. They would ra they rather, since they hated the president, the liberals in the CIA, they would rather use it to embarrass the president with. And of course, this yes. um, this it, the head of the CIA at the time, George Tenet, was a Clinton appointee, which Bush unwisely yes. held over and kept as his uh, CIA director. And this guy, not only when he got kicked, when George Bush finally realized the guy was disloyal and got rid of him, he ends up writing a book, you know, basically blaming the president and trying to exonerate himself. When, you know, it was Bob, Bob Woodward wrote in his books about the the war in Iran that he's got the quote right there. George Tenet told George Bush that it was a slam dunk that there were weapons of mass destruction in, a, in Iraq and Iraq was a danger. So the president was misled by the CIA and then the CIA tried to embarrass the president for politicizing intelligence. It's just, it's just yes. amazing the way the media well, and the bureaucrats played this well, in this country. Well, I mean, just looking from afar, we were hearing all this data of all the many reasons to attack Iraq, and then later on, once Iraq had been attacked, all of a sudden, all the evidence seems to quietly disappear into thin air, and everything that people had said was there, suddenly they now claim wasn't there. And I, it looked ridiculous from, from our point of view that one minute they say they have hard evidence, and then the next minute the hard evidence is gone. The intelligence community in the United States pulled the rug out from under the president. When the president yes. got rid of Tenet, the president attempted to put in a new CIA uh, director who was going to clean things up. But the, but the battles yeah. that he fought, they outmaneuvered him. He got rid of some people, okay. but they eventually tricked him into resigning. <laughs> and oh, Timberman wow. tells the story of how that happened. But it, it, it's the ability to, to, to fight a bureaucracy like this, entrenched bureaucracy. The president should have the power to fire anybody. Say, you're gone, pack your stuff, go. But it's just like school teachers well, in this country. You can't fire a bad teacher. Well, this, is, this brings me back to what I was writing about the middle management. Because I was saying to people that I'm convinced that the president of the United States is not really as powerful as you think he is. There's, there seem to be so many other things that can stop him from actually doing something. And uh, 
I mean, this concept of democracy is almost a joke in your country. It has become one part of the political spectrum, and I would call it the left, does not feels so righteous in their opinion that they feel they have the right to play these dirty games and so that when Democrats lose an election like they lost to two presidential elections of course they didn't think they lost to one in 2001 or they don't control Congress they use tricks to thwart the Republican majority in Congress that the Republicans would have never used all those years the Democrats were in the majority in Congress before they had it and now the Democrats are back in power and now you're going to see with with Obama and the Democrats, you're going to see really uh, unusual behavior, but really usual behavior, because now for the first time you're going to see them in power for for the first time in ten years, uh, in more than ten years. It's been 1994 was the last time they controlled both houses of Congress and had the White House, and now you're going to see what they're going to yeah. do with it. And of course, the left they have these politically correct cultural. Uh, multicultural ideas and so the way they view your country, South Africa, the way they view Asia, the way they view the Middle East is all through the lens of this you know, they don't really fully believe that that there's a Muslim threat Uh, they might believe that that terrorism is either exaggerated or of course we overreacted to it, which perhaps we, we did uh, but that they want to negotiate with everybody around the world. They will not recognize enemies in Venezuela, in Russia, in China, or they're reluctant to be an enemy in return to the enmity shown by those. And they pursue these these policies that make the United States look very silly, like you said, from your point of view. Yes. You know, Jeff, I mean, this whole business... Take a look at Somalia, for example. There was there were some um, Al Qaeda people starting to cause trouble there and starting to try to take it over. And uh, I was following this for quite a while, and then it looked as if the CIA was starting to get active there, because I read news reports of how they were starting to buy off certain um, warlords. But then that wasn't successful enough, and then later on it seemed as if they bought off the government of Ethiopia to now go and try and fight al-Qaeda in Somalia. But at every stage, one is seeing your government making use of these third parties to fight their wars because they themselves are not really keen on fighting these wars. Mm -hmm. But those wars are also not being fought very well. And those wars are not going to come to an end. But at all times, your people are busy buying off somebody and paying off somebody, but never really solving the problem. Well, and uh, I was speaking. This is just to interrupt you for a second, Jan. Uh, this is a okay. real problem because if you're an African uh, leader and you're being offered money to fight somebody for the Americans, isn't it in your best interest to just take the money and pretend to fight? Jeff, people are. This is exactly what is happening all the time. These guys are. You know, your people are being played to such a degree. You know, I'm sure that your government thinks all these people in Africa are stupid. But let me tell you something. Um, the concept of 
shall we call it native cunning, is much more powerful than you think. These guys know how to play you people. I've been watching Robert Mugabe and especially President Thabo Mbeki of South Africa. If there was one guy who knew how to deal with the West and who knew how to play the game with the West, it was Thabo Mbeki. That guy was carrying out communist policies quietly while everybody was claiming that this guy is pro-Western. And the way he protected Robert Mugabe for the last nine years was an absolute masterpiece. He would come up with all these strange arguments about why he cannot interfere with the sovereignty of Zimbabwe and why people must give Robert Mugabe time. You know, George Bush came to South Africa and he said, he said in public that President Mbeki is his point man in Africa. George Bush really believed that President Mbeki was going to look out for Western and American interests in Africa. And, and for years and years, Mbeki was betraying you guys. He was taking the money and the aid which he was getting in vast quantities and, the, and all the political um, uh, sort of influence that he was getting. And meanwhile, he was doing absolutely nothing in Zimbabwe. And he, and you know what? President Mbeki did not resolve a single conflict in Africa satisfactorily. He would go to the, to the side that, that he favors and he would help them. There is not one peace deal that those guys have signed that has actually lasted. You know, one good thing about the United States government going broke is that it will no longer be able to give money to these uh, communists who are uh, basically tricking Washington in Africa. I mean, it, it just uh, to think of all the money wasted and all the trouble in Africa that it's caused. It's just uh, it's it's amazing to me. I can't believe these people have such poor. You know what? Judgment. Let me tell you something, Jeff. Those of us who live in Africa, who have lived in Rhodesia and who have seen what the West does. We, you know, we get to see, even in the time of Rhodesia, we would get to see how the United Nations, um, for example, when, when our soldiers were fighting terrorists in liberation movements and they were getting into their camps where they'd been armed by the Soviets, they would also find, um, food that had come from, from Holland and, and things that had come from America and from the Red Cross and so forth. You know, these terrorists, these Marxist terrorists, were actually getting food and all sorts of other assistance from the West. And we always used to say that if there's one thing the West must do is it must immediately stop giving money and aid to these people. And it continues to this day. You know, there is Robert Mugabe. Everything should have been done to encourage a war to get rid of this man. But instead, the minute your government sees that there is conflict arising, the first thing they do is they try and stop it, and they try and give aid to people. And I was talking to a South African um, army officer who had at one time uh, even done some consulting in the United States and had lectured to, to some American soldiers. And he, he went and he said to them, one of the worst things that you people are doing 
is you people are coming with all these ceasefires in all these conflicts, and you people are actually taking wars and making them worse. And if you look at all these conflicts, Jeff, these ceasefires and peace deals are the most evil thing imaginable. Often, one side is actually busy winning. Sometimes, it's even the good guys that are busy winning. And these idiot, idiots will come along, and they'll stop the conflict. It'll give the other side a time to rearm. And those conflicts run forever and ever. There are conflicts in Africa that have run for over 30 years. Until the bad guys win, like in Angola. Until, well, well said, Jeff. Until the bloody bad guys win. These people are, you know, you either have to say those people are out of their minds or they have ulterior motives. Well, I I can't understand (coughs) how these people can go around thinking they won the Cold War when the Civil War in Angola ended in communist victory. When you have a communist dictator rising to power in Venezuela, when you have, uh, you know, Ortega, uh, South, South Africa is run by the communists. Yeah, Daniel Ortega I mean, is back in power in Nicaragua. Fidel Castro is wheezing, but his brother's in charge in Cuba. You've got uh, a yes. KGB officer in the Kremlin. The Communist Party's in, openly in charge of of China and Beijing. You've got yes. all these countries like Iran. You know, in their orbit, and you've got all these countries in Africa that are just chummy with China and Russia, like there's no end to it. With all the strategic mineral, the mineral storehouse, which is sub-Saharan Africa, uh, that together with Russia have most of the strategic metals on the entire planet. Yes, and you know, none of these governments, no matter how weak they are are actually thrown out of power. And Jeff, you know, the more I study these situations like Zimbabwe, even a Western diplomat turned around a while back and he said that in reality, in that country of 13 million people, there are probably only 20,000 people, mostly in the military, who are propping up Mugabe. Mugabe could be run out of power Within a week, if anybody really wanted to, South Africa could South Africa could have knocked Mugabe out within about three or four days if they ever wished to. That's how much power we have. And yet, look at that man. It's nine years, and he's still around. He's he lost an election in March. I mean, he's lost many elections before, but he managed to cheat his. He managed to at least present enough of a facade that people could say, well. He, he probably won it. But in March of this year, his cover was blown. Even the most liberal people in the world could see that he had lost. And yet, on my website, I'm counting, and it's 244 days of illegal rule. He's not made one move to lay down power. You know, he's but he's been, been and voted up. And he's been in power almost 30 years. He's been in power almost 30 years, yes. And, and no, no democratic, in two years' time. No genuinely yeah. democratically elected leader can be can in that. power that long. Absolutely. Unbroken, eh? Yes. Without, without ever losing an election. No, that's, just, yeah. that's not the way human it's nature works. It's impossible. No, it's impossible. Yes. You know that when somebody has been in power for more than 20 years, they haven't been in power democratically. They have used... Yes non-democratic methods, shall we say, to make it polite-sounding. 
And I mean, the evidence is there. But the thing that gets to me, Jeff, and I speak to a lot of military people from our part of the world, and the thing that amazes us is we are amazed at the wastage of your government, the amount of money they waste um, on on the things that they do, and yet how simple it would be to actually solve some of these problems. To to you know the thing that gets to me about this never-ending desire to make peace at any price is just that I say to myself, but the people you're making peace with are a bunch of third-world trash. They are backward, and if you really wanted to, you could knock them out in one shot and, and get this game over with. There is nothing really to fear from any of these people. You know, even if these people came in a worst-case scenario and let off a single nuclear bomb in the United States. One nuclear bomb is not going to bring the United States to an end, not by any any stretch of the imagination. So, and a lot of these terrorists are real rubbish, and they don't really have much going for them. But your country and the Western world seems to be so intent on compromising with them even when they've got nothing to really compromise with mm. and you know why why is it that when any old piece of rubbish comes along with with a, with some AK47s that the western world suddenly embraces him and gives him credibility and strikes deals with him and everything when you could actually get rid of him for once and for all many of these much of much of this activity of embracing these people is actually enabling evil to prosper. Dictators who would have been thrown out by their own people are instead assisted and given money and so forth, and that actually strengthens their position. Now, you recently attended what a, a, some kind of a, a meeting or a seminar about terrorism. Yes. Tell, tell us actually, about that. Okay, there, there was there's a, a gentleman by the name of Kami Gillen. He is an Israeli, and a Jewish friend of mine told me that he was going to talk at a, a local synagogue here in Johannesburg, and I managed to attend it. There were probably about 60 or 70 people there, and uh, Kami Gillen headed the Shin Bet which is almost like the Mossad, but it's the internal sort of internal intelligence and security of Israel. Now, Kami Gillen is somewhat uh, liberal and left-wing, but even so, I went to have a bit of a, I went to listen because he was going to give an hour's talk about terrorism and the threat of terrorism. So he, he when I look at what he told us, he said some interesting things, but there were also lots of things that were unsaid and lots of things uh, where, where I think uh, he could have told us a lot more. His message was a bit disjointed. Even so, there were some very interesting things that came out of it. The first thing that, that he said was that in his viewpoint, which I don't totally agree with, but he said that terrorism used to be political terrorism. And you used to have a terrorist that you could negotiate with. But he said the new kind of terrorism, this, this Islamic terrorism, 
is really based on religion, and you cannot ever actually comp because it's based on their belief system. You they will never compromise with you. So there is no place to compromise, and this thing can carry on almost forever. And um, he spoke about his concept of of peace in the Middle East, and he actually did come out and say that. His definition of peace is not really peace as we know it. It's merely just the cessation of war. It doesn't mean that any of those Arab countries will ever like Israel, will ever, or or will even trade or deal with Israel. He said that if you look at Egypt and Israel, for example, they had made peace with each other, but they there was hardly any tourism between them, and they hardly had any contact with each other. They just weren't fighting each other openly, and he said that in his view, that is about the only kind of peace that the Israelis will be able to get. He said that um, as far as things stand between them and the Arabs, he can't see there being any peace in the Middle East for the next 200 years. The most interesting thing he came and said was that that really hit home to me was he said that um, Americans. Americans were losing the war. He said that he said that Americans were starting to get tired of the war, he, and they well, were losing. On, he, you mean the war in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yes, yes. Uh-huh, he said good. that Americans were starting to tire of that, and he said that by electing Obama, and his words were interesting. He said that by electing Obama, Americans had voted for surrender. But he did make a point which goes back to this whole um, business of these bureaucrats. He did make the, the point that he personally does not believe that Obama might withdraw out of Iraq, even though Obama said he would. So it would be an interesting thing to see if the bureaucrats convince Obama to remain in Iraq. Um, but, you know, the half-hearted war... <laughs> That you people are fighting there, you know, that thing can carry on forever and ever. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. you know, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll tell you something, Jeff. In, in South Africa and in, in Rhodesia, uh, our soldiers tried this concept of hearts and minds. And hearts and minds was started by you people in Vietnam. And this is all about winning over the populace and all that sort of thing. And it didn't work in Vietnam, and it didn't work in South Africa, and it didn't work in Rhodesia. And uh, I, I'm quite sure that it won't work in the Middle East either. Well, Jan, we've gone past our 30 minutes for the podcast. I want to thank you for being with us here on the jrnyquist.com uh, podcast. It was a pleasure, Jeff.